I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Looking for a way to support The Dinner Party Show? A percentage of any purchase you make through a buy link on thedinnerpartyshow.com will allow us to keep bringing you the show free of charge. If you're an Amazon customer, head to thedinnerpartyshow.com and click on the Amazon Gold Box located in the lower left-hand corner of every page of our site. Do this, and a percentage of each purchase you make at Amazon during that shopping session will support our continued operation. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And now it's time for another episode of The Dinner Party Show. Hi, I'm Patricia Cornwell, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Show with the wonderful Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. I went to a marvelous party. Most people don't even know the facts. They go with their gut, and the only thing their gut cares about is your season. Christopher? This is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine. You first, Eric. Live from the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's The Dinner Party Show. The Internet's first live comedy variety show with your hosts, New York Times best-selling authors, Christopher Rice. No, there's actually a new study that confirms every other child you see on the street is a ghost. <laughs> and Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't want to talk too much, but... Okay, no, no. We're going to take up a collection for the stained glass window. Now we want the dirt. <laughs> Featuring reports from their largely unqualified staff of special correspondents. Sex is like Christmas. It's the not knowing what you're going to get that makes it exciting. New York is a giant trash island infested by has-been theater queens. If we're really serious about cutting federal spending, the biggest waste of public funds I can think of is Congress. Two snaps for Jesus! The Dinner Party Show. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you live and for free through thedinnerpartyshow.com and our free mobile app. And now, direct from the kitchen by way of the... Get out of my office! It's your hosts, Christopher and Eric! Good evening, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and you're listening to a special edition of The Dinner Party Show for July 26th. 2015. The Dinner Party Show Summer Sampler Series continues tonight with a special focus on our favorite topic, writing. And who better to comment on all the hows and whys and how-tos of writing than the amazing collection of authors who've taken a place at our dining table and given us the secrets of their success. Anne Rice, Patricia Cornwell, Jackie Collins, Armistead Maupin, Patricia Nell Warren, Dan Savage, Cammie Garcia, and Margaret Stoll. And we'll have an all-new interview with author Larissa Ione about her latest addition to A Thousand and One Dark Nights. It's a brand new installment in her podcast 
popular Demonica series called Hades. That's all being served up tonight on The Right Answers, tonight's all-new TDPS summer sampler. The secret to great dinner parties is great guests, so let's turn the party over to the great authors who have graced our table. We begin at the beginning. The most difficult part of writing is getting that first word on the page. You have to find a story worth telling. You have to create the perfect characters to tell that story. Create a time and a place for your story to unfold. And then you have to tell your story. Our who's who of literary guests have some surprising answers to the simple question of how did you get started? And, just as every story is unique, so too are the inspirations for those stories. Here to get us started is our first guest, Anne Rice, from our first live remote broadcast from BentCon, talking about the beginnings of her revolutionary, genre-launching Vampire Chronicles. Well, I think that your take on what the vampire was, was I think that's what was so revolutionary about it, was that you didn't see it the same way as everyone no, has before. No, no, the interview no. with the vampire started an entire new look at what being a vampire even was, to see yeah. it from the vampire's point of view, as right. opposed to from the people running from the vampire's point of view, which is sort of repetitive. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I, remember, I remember halfway through the book, I went to the library just to see if anybody else had done this, and it was very easy then to do vampire research. This was 1973, and there just wasn't much on vampires. Well, you hadn't and I discovered this way. that nobody else had, you know, checked it out pretty quick and went home from the library. That was about it, you know. Uh, now, uh, looking back on that, it doesn't seem so revolutionary, but it was very unusual at the time. But you know, there was something in the air in America at that time. People wanted the backstory of the villain. It wasn't just, just what I was doing. But, the Godfather yeah. was part of that too. Nobody had ever done the mafia from the interior of the mafia, sympathetic to the mafia. Right. Until Mario Puzo did that, and Don Corleone was kind of, that was a revolutionary thing. So that movie just way transcended any sort of crime movie that hmm. the studios had ever made before. It really wasn't a crime movie. It was a work of art. And uh, it was even the, the Superman movie that Richard Dick Donner did uh, shortly after that was revolutionary. You know, he took Superman totally seriously and did it with high production values. And the movie really was from his point of view. So that was in the air. To hear our complete conversation with my mother, Anne Rice, at BentCon, you can download episode 93 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Another genre-launching author, Patricia Cornwell, who created the forensic procedural that has come to dominate crime and detective fiction, talked with us about how her part-time idea made her a literary pioneer. It's a weird story. I, I always wanted to be a writer. And, in fact, that's all I did as a little kid was write and draw pictures and put little books together. Not a surprise. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and then in college I decided I really wasn't good at anything else, and that was pretty true. So, well, maybe you should just be a writer because that's what you – you seem to know how to do that okay. So I got Apparently. a job in journalism first. They gave me the police beat, and that's what got me interested in crime. And then I, then I wrote my first – book was a biography, which sounds odd, but of Billy Graham's wife, mm-hmm. a wonderful person who was a good friend of mine, had nothing to do with re- religion. She was just this amazing woman. Mm-hmm. Huh. Then when I decided to write books about crime, I needed to do research. And I always thought, what, where do they take the body? What do they do with it? Because mm. I'd get to a crime scene as a journalist and the body's whisked away. So I went to work in a medical examiner's office to do research. 
Oh. And I thought I'd be such a little whiz kid, you know, give me a few months in here and then I'll write my first crime novel. Right, right. Well, three rejected crime novels and six years later, (laughs) I finally wrote Postmortem. And that made the rounds and was rejected by every major house in New York City. Um, so I was taking Amtrak looking for a job because my, I thought I don't want to spend the rest of my life working in a morgue. Mm-hmm. You know, six years of my cinder block, yeah. mm-hmm. windowless room. Um, and then Scribner's took it on postmortem on by literally a thread. We really? think we might take it. Then yes, we'll take it. And six thousand first printing I was paid six thousand dollars. Wow. And it. You know, I didn't. I never ever imagined that I would do anything that would hit a hit a bestseller list. Wow! So, did you have a fallback plan if it didn't work? Was there something else you really sort of were passionate about? No. Right. <laughs> I was just going to jump off a bridge eventually. I guess. <laughs> you know, I just said I don't have. I didn't. You know, I, I really didn't want to go back to journalism. Right. When I, I'd been around the real crimes, you right. know, the, 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 the the families, the dead bodies, and. That developed such a sensitivity in me that I didn't think I could ever report on these things on the other side where you don't care if you hurt Mm. somebody's feelings or distress them by putting details in the media that might devastate them all over again. It really changed who I am Mm. to see this all for real. So the minute I'd finished postmortem, I'd already started Body of Evidence. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know, I said, I'm I'm just going to keep giving this a try. You know, maybe... Maybe someday I'll, I'll make it enough that I can afford to do this for a living. You Just never keep know. Just writing. Yeah, right. So. Well, well, the saying, I think we talk about it all the time on the show because they say it a lot to young actors when they come out to L.A. If you can be happy doing anything else, go do that because this is really, really hard. And a lot of them answer, no, I'm not going to be happy doing anything else. I've In got to case, give this my you all. Have to do this. And I'll deal with the fallout when it's time to deal with the fallout, you know? Well, I, but I did work, you know, I mean, my, I had a full-time job at the medical examiner's office. I learned how to become a computer programmer right and I I managed their statewide computers in their database and did all their statistical analysis and so I if worse came to worse I was just going to be a, a, a low-paid computer yeah. state right. but you employee. took the job to research the topic rather than the other way well, around yeah, that's see, really you know, interesting but, to me I you didn't know I got my that. first book contract when I was only 23 years old you know with for, with wow. Harper and Rowe for the Ruth book so I thought right. that that would segue into anything well no, it certainly didn't. Yeah. Well, My agent dropped that. me after that. And nobody was interested in mm-hmm. anything else I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all know how hard it is. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, something that I read was that early on, the rejections for your first books had to do specifically with the fact that they took place in a morgue, or so much of them did. That, yeah. that ultimately, the genre that you ended up inventing was lost on people in the very beginning. Oh, was a f- they said nobody wants to read about morgues or laboratories. Right. And certainly not a woman who works in such a place. A woman. And that really? was Were really they that yes. pointed about the woman part. Well, the this one this one bookseller in Richmond, um, who was nice enough to have a book signing for me. This is a you mentioned it earlier. It's a very funny story. <clears throat> he 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 had me come down to his store, and I said, "Are you going to put books in the window?" And he says, I, "I don't. I can't afford to order you know enough books to put. I can't afford really to put books in the window or whatever." <laughs> so I gave him. A case, my only case that I got free to put in the window. I gave him wow. a case of books, which now each one of those is worth over two thousand dollars a piece. <laughs> rare That's first wonderful. editions, but but so but he said, you know, your book, 
the, it disturbed me so much that Scarpetta is a woman that I went through your book and I changed all the pronouns to he and him to see if I could if this was more palatable to me. And he said, but that just didn't work very well. <laughs> and I and I said, well, why does it because bother he knew you? He'd done it. I said, but why does it bother you so much that Scarpetta, that a chief medical examiner would be a woman he says well i just don't think women should be seeing things like this and i said but why wouldn't they they're usually the victims of it right absolutely and, and now of course the field is just the forensic field is just crowded with women right absolutely. there are more women medical examiners and forensic scientists than men absolutely. And that certainly wasn't true in 1990 wonder if you might have had something i to think do so with that. to hear our complete interview with patricia download episode 52 from our show archive at the dinner party show or from itunes some authors happen on their masterpiece more by happenstance than design to hear our guest the legendary armistead maupin tell it his nine volume opus got started almost by accident so I have to ask you some technical writer questions. Oh, sure, Because sure. we're all, all three of us are writers here, but I'm always curious to know uh, how much of a sense a writer has of where he's headed when he starts. And with you, were you really headed towards six volumes, or did you just no. think, oh, I'll just start with these I people? was trying to get out the daily installment in the paper initially when it was serialized in the Chronicle. I just wanted to make something that had a shape, uh, you know, 800 words that had a shape. Right. And then I started creating a cast, and then I started alternating them and it kind of grew organically right i certainly didn't think about how that there were going to be a series of novels and that each of them had to be self-contained and that now the now all nine of them would have to have a shape right um i think it was just a, a wiring that developed right. over time you were, know were the the characters are very distinctive were they was there any reality to them? Were there people that you had met who inspired you at the time to, with the the characters that have become the the stock and trade of the the tales? Um, some of them were. I mean, I'd be been idea like there was a kind of a hippie woman at the ad agency whose job was to be creative, impress the clients with her wacky creativity. So uh-huh. she had like a Victorian toilet and a hookah in her. <laughs> In her office. <laughs> in her office. And like I, you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who and doesn't that's want Mona, Mona Ramsey did that. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. She sort of sold her wackiness, uh, although she was kind of bitter Mona. about it because she really didn't want to be uh-huh. working in an ad agency. I was the mailboy at the ad agency where that happened. And my boss was very much like the conservative guy that ran Halcyon Communications. Right. Mm-hmm. Marianne Singleton had to hang out the flag every day on the front of the building. I did too. I raised the American flag. That was my first job of the morning. Oh, my God. Because this guy was like a retired admiral. Right. Um, <laughs> Fire So bits and pieces, it all cannon. came out of my life. Uh-huh. But then to make them alive, I'm sure you both do this, you mm. find something in yourself. You find yes. Some quality, good or bad, uh, you go down some some lane or another to uh, to give it uh, emotional life. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They're all you in the end. Exactly. They're all you in the end. Exactly. And that's why the question of which of your characters are based on real people is always impossible to answer, and I, always, I think, because they're all yeah. me. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But we should also talk about the days of Anna Madrigal. Is this really the end? Yes, it is. Wow. Just you can't do it anymore. I or? just I don't want to f- I don't want to well, fail I, at it. And how perfect to and go out as a bestseller, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe maybe it took that. I don't know. 
I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. <laughs> like Motley Crue signing a contract, technique. swearing that you're right, not going to Right, it's your retirement tour to get the ticket right? sales up, right? My farewell tour. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. I do mean it. I mean, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want it to ring true. Yeah. I've got some younger characters in there that I know how to write. Mm-hmm. But if I bring too many more in, I'm afraid that I'd get that wrong because it's always grown out of my own experience. And, and I certainly know how to write about, uh, you know, people in their uh, older people, people in their 60s. And, and even Anna was not difficult. Once right. you pass 65, you're basically in geezer land and you, <laughs> and you, and you can totally identify with a 92-year-old woman. Sure. <laughs> like it's all kind of in the same. It evens out. It evens out. Yeah. Week said I, I think it's always worth yeah. pointing out to young people, yeah. you're going to be old a lot longer than you were ever young. And so you, you yeah. might want to work on those it's skills. It's not bad either. I mean, no. it's not bad in the sense, physically, that stuff is harder, but um, it's not bad to have that less tension about everything in yeah. terms of how you're looking and all of that. What you're going to accomplish. Yeah, what you're, you're going to do, what you're going to put next. up with. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's pretty good side of it. That's the mm-hmm. that's the that's the, the best upside. report I can. That's the upside. Yeah. And medical care is improving. That helps. Yeah, I'm I'm on Medicare now and hallelujah. There was a <laughs> there was a period there's a period there where I let my I, I, I'm terrible at managing my own affairs and I let my medical insurance and I, uh, you know, drop. Yeah. And I joined. I can't remember what the initial is, but it's the show business one, and that writers are a part of. If you're mm-hmm. if you're a member of Penn, you can get it. Oh, mm. oh but I paid twenty five thousand dollars a year. Oh my God! To Whoa. hang on to medical insurance. Wow. Um, because you must basically, right? Yeah. Especially if you're older. Yeah, as you get right. on up there. Yeah. Um, but. Um, so, where, how did we get on the fact that I'm a geezer? <laughs> uh, well, I was going to ask you, did you know when you started writing this book that this yeah. was the end? Was yes, I did. planned to be the end? Okay. I did. Right. And I knew the two skeins that I was going to thread together. I knew uh-huh. I wanted to write about Burning Man. Oh, okay. Uh, Bur- Burning Man is where they end up in this novel. Right. I've been there for the last two years. Uh, my husband dragged me kicking and screaming the first year. You'd have to drag me kicking yeah. and screaming. Too. You'd have to drag this one yeah. screaming and screaming. It, it, t- <laughs> it takes place outside. <laughs> yeah. That's just out yeah. of the question. But once you get that sarong on... <laughs> Well, if it was flattering, you'll be very you'd be surprised how how easy it becomes. <laughs> right. You have to let go because there's dust everywhere. There's oh. terrible dust storms. It's really right. hot. Oh my Were god. Were you in a trailer? I uh, yes. Okay. I was in an, oh, we took an god. RV. An RV, I meant, yes. Um but as soon as Christopher, my husband, was saying, Okay, we're gonna need earplugs, I said, What are we going to need earplugs for? Because it's an it's a rave that goes on all night long right. in some yeah. areas. Wow. Um but there's it's it's a real adventure. It's uh-huh. wonderful, I and mean, it seems you, like a perfect subject for you. Yeah, and it's, it's so full of coincidence. Huh? It's perfect for a novel because right. um, anybody there? can meet anyone. Right. There are no cell phones, uh, so you just wander out into the playa, and things happen. You see people, and you bump into people you haven't seen for the longest time, um, and it's pretty cool. This year, um, at Christopher's suggestion, I. I didn't take a bicycle. I took an adult 
A tricycle? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. Oh, it was fabulous. You can pedal out into the playa, and if you get exhausted, you can just sit there. Right. You're already in your chair. You're already in your chair. You don't have to maintain your balance or anything. I think that's genius. I might get one just yeah. to go around West Hollywood. I had to, I had, it's entirely different from riding a bicycle, so I had to master it because uh -huh. it fell on me the first three times. Oh. I, that's oh, embarrassing, no. falling off your tricycle. Yeah, that really does. Oh. You want, I hope nobody saw. That's yeah. Wonderful. Oh no, it's you don't care. Yeah. You really don't care. Um uh and just crazy things happen. My friend Andy Greer showed up in some circus shorts or something. <laughs> He, at 43 looks fabulous in them, you know. Right. And told us that Madonna had just brought the rights to his book, you know, oh, in her trailer. Wow. Wow. wow, that's nice. And I thought, wow, you know, uh, it's just, um, it's sort of nutty what happens to you when you're there. Right. It sounds, it sounds like San Francisco used to be. It is. <laughs> it you is. Know? It's yeah. where they all went. It yeah. is. And it's where the characters all go to They go, the, uh, some, Anna, Anna Madrigal in this novel is heading to Winnemucca. Her childhood, right? Home. To see Mama, or to see her. her there's source. no one to yeah. see. That's what they're trying to figure out. What? Who is she going to go see right. after 75 years? Right. What, what, who could possibly be there? Um, and uh, that's that's one mystery. And then the others are heading off uh, further south into into Burning Man. And I get to put in all my grumpiness about the experience into Michael. Um, so there are autobiographical elements. Uh, As there always have to yeah. be. I can't. Yeah. You, we can never be left out of what we write. No, no. And it would and why be would we want flat to? and weird yeah, yeah. if we left ourselves out. It is that revelation, I think, that makes... I, I think it's what people have connected so much with, with the tales, is how incredibly personal it is, how very sort of revealing it is. Uh, people can connect with those people because they're very real and very honest. And well, don't very... you find if you do that and then somebody says, I love that part where you talked about this, I do that too... Um, yeah, right. You feel better, right? Yeah, put, absolutely. Put the most it's embarrassing like, oh, things about yourself. Good, in there. I'm not quite quite as insane as I thought. Yeah. Yes. To hear our complete interview with Armistead, download episode 61 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. And we'll be back with more right answers from our amazing library of author interviews. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. The internet is full of people talking about stuff they hate. So on thedinnerpartyshow.com, we've decided to launch a new feature that's all about stuff we love. That's right. It's called Christopher and Eric's Favorites. Each month, we'll recommend a variety of products we just can't live without so that you can enjoy them, too. You can visit Christopher and Eric's favorites at thedinnerpartyshow.com, and that's where you can also sign up for our newsletter and be the first to know when new favorites are added to the site. And remember, if you use any of the buy links on thedinnerpartyshow.com, a percentage of your purchase will help support the operation of the show. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Sacred Cows Roasted Daily. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and we're back with Right Answers, the third in our Summer Sampler series. We've been talking with our bestsellers about how they got started, and two of our guests told one of the best stories of the most unlikely beginning for one of the most successful young adult series ever written. Our guests, Cami Garcia and writing partner Margaret Stoll, are perhaps the least likely success story we've ever heard. 
so let's let's go back in time. All right. So Cami Garcia is a high school teacher here in Los Angeles. Uh, Margaret is the parent of one of her students. And, and the to... queen of, of video games. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was my gig. I had that gig. It just goes to show you can have a lot of gigs. Right. I made video games for 16 years. Wow. Because I am the oldest person you will ever interview. I appear to you today as a miracle of modern science. <laughs> Well, we are definitely the oldest YA writers because most of them are like 23 and could be our daughters. We gave birth to most of them. But your original plan was to write a book together and post it for free on a website. Well, plan is an overstatement. I was about to say that. (laughs) Napkin is a closer to the truth. I was was in a dollar tequila. I was an elementary school teacher and I also tutored high school English and taught high school book groups and seven kids, including Margie's daughter and my younger sister, were in my fantasy book club. And there was a lot of talk, um, like Hunger Games hadn't come out, but Twilight was out, and they were, you know, kind of sick of reading the same thing. They were like, why can't anybody create their own supernaturals? Why can't the girl be the powerful one? Why is that girl so whiny? So Margie and I went to eat Mexican food at El Cholo, as we often do. And Tequila was involved. Yes, and uh, knew it. And we were saying, like, well, you know, we could totally create our own supernaturals. That would be so easy. And you know, we we could set it in the south. And we start writing it all down on napkins. And by the end of the time, like three hours later, we came up with the idea for three pictures later, beautiful, cre- <laughs> beautiful creatures. And Margie goes home to tell her daughter about her idea and what happens. Yeah, and I told my oldest surly daughter, the one Cammie broke like a horse in her classroom, and she laughed in her faces and said... Well, mostly in Margie's face. Yeah, she said, Mom, you might say you're going to write a book, but you're actually not, because in three days you're going to be doing something else. Why? Because you never finish anything. Whoa! Okay, but it was true. That's the mom thing to say. It was totally the mom thing to say. I am the, I've been diagnosed subsequently with, you know, I'm an ADHD executive function disaster. So to give (laughs) her- That's a diagnosis? Yeah. Adult disaster. It's called executive malfunction. And I have it. And so That's she a was, great name for our show yeah. if we ever want to rebrand exactly. or, or our production company. Yeah, yeah, right. So she was right, and I called Cammy and I go, you know, that thing we said we were going to do that we totally were not going to do. We are totally going to do that thing now. She was like, just to show her. I said, it's on. Well, I finish. She's everything. going down. Yeah, you, she's. You finish everything and everyone. If that story yeah. about you getting into the line is any true. Yeah. Uh, okay. She's so, called but, the Punisher. So you wrote it together. <laughs> you yeah. wrote it together. Okay. No, and we started. Then what I started. I sent her. 25 pages and said, are we really going to do this? She said, these are terrible, changed everything, sent it back to me. I said, these are terrible, changed everything, sent it back to her. And it was the relationship, the partnership was born. We were going to get Margie's sister-in-law, a web designer, to design a very fancy website for us. And we were going to put up the story for free. So people could go up on our fancy website and and read it. Cool. Okay. And then what happened? This is my favorite part of the story. So then um, Margie's oldest friend, who is also a middle grade author, his name is Pseudonymous Bosch. He writes the Secret Series. Spoiler, that's not his real name. Yes. She sent him. He had been reading it also while we were writing. And we told him about our master plan for the website. He said, you two are idiots. Don't do that. Go find something else to do for a couple days. And he sent it to his agent in New York without telling us. And yeah. she called Margie. And I was like, ooh, exciting, long-distance phone call. It's New York. It's probably someone from college, a guy I've forgotten about. <laughs> or a collection know. agent. Yeah, usually. No, that's yeah. like Mar- Maryland. Yeah. Yeah, Maryland. <laughs> Delaware. No Delaware, yeah. Um, Thanks. Yeah. So um, she calls, and I call Cammie, and I go, good news. Someone in New York likes our book. 
I think she's an agent. Bad news. Don't know her last name. Don't know where she works. Don't have her phone number. <laughs> so you just had this call with her like, hey, yeah, yeah. Well, I love was books. too polite to be like, who are you? Which yeah. really marked the beginning of our relationship with our agent. But we let me stop so you for a second. Stupid. So the agent wasn't aware that you hadn't submitted this? That this? No, she submit- knew we okay. hadn't. Because she, right. she repped, you know, pseudonymous box. I don't think oh. she knew how stupid we were. Okay. And uh, to this to this day, like, we never- Naive. Let's go with naive. No, we stupid didn't. is so harsh. We didn't sign an agreement with her. We never knew we had an agent for sure until she sold the we book. We would discuss privately. I'd be, Margie would be like, okay, when she's talking to us, don't ask a lot of questions. Because if she realizes how stupid we are, she's going to fire us. <laughs> yeah. She'd be like, so just go along Trying with whatever she says. Trying to impress the agent. She's like, yeah. go along with whatever she says until we get that contract, which so, we still don't have. Yeah. So, we, we got one. We got off the phone after it went to auction. It immediately, it went to a big auction. No, no, no. You got to start back. Yeah, start so back this up. is my favorite. So yeah. we call Pseudonymous Bosch to brag uh, about the New York agent who uh, wants yeah. our book. And he's like, you two are idiots. How do you think anyone in New York got your book? That's my agent. And we're like, well, good. Now we know our name. Right? Yeah. And Detective she's, work she's pays submitted, off. She submits it. And we get, she would always call and talk very fast. We would be on conference call and she called and she said, okay, I'm sending it out. Um, I sent it, I'm sent. i sending it out. I'll call you tomorrow for an update. She calls us back and says, okay, the book's going to auction, but it's a Friday. We're not going to do anything till Monday. Do you have any questions? And we're like, no, because you know we're not going to yeah. ask any questions. And then she was like, okay, great. I'll update you. And she hangs up. And then Margie immediately calls me and says, it's an auction. Like, that's that's good, right? And I was like, no, no, no. This is how they sell pigs in the South at the end of the fair that no one wants. She's like, this is a 4-H disaster. I was, like, I was this- like, crap. I thought it was a good no, thing. No, I was like, we're going to get $4.95 for this book, and we're going to be the laughing stock of everyone we know. But we thought, well, we'd be published. That would be a good so, thing. So there's that. Yeah. So we, uh, it is apparently not how you sell pigs. No. It's not the same. Well, it no, is, no. but it's not, not the, the same. same. It is how you sell pigs, but it's not actually the same thing it's actually a good thing yeah yeah because then other people are driving up the price yes and we it took us a while to figure all that out and um and many other things along the way to hear our complete interview with cammy and margie download episode 88 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from itunes patricia nell warren is one of the most inspirational authors we've ever had on the show patricia is the reason i'm a writer so no kidding and she shared one of the most inspired stories of how she came to write her iconic game-changing bestseller the front runner there's now a huge market for uh, what's called m slash m romance out there a lot of it is written by women it's written by lesbian women. It's mm-hmm. written by bi women. It's written by straight women. Was there ever a moment for you early on where someone said, "Patricia, you're going to write a gay love story about two long distance runners," and and are you crazy? Like, was was that ever introduced as a concern? Because that's something that would probably be said to a writer even today if they were shooting to write a book that they wanted to be, you know, a bestseller, which right. not everybody shoots for. But well, Chris, that's that's a great question. And bear in mind, I was in the closet, so there wasn't anybody to say this to me because nobody but me had any idea what was going on with me. And I came to it kind of step by step through this whole world of long distance running and being involved in sports politics. And there was the moment, like I said earlier, oh my God, what a story there is here. Somebody's got to write this story. And it started out originally being a story about a lesbian coach and her female runner. Oh, interesting. Because, after all, I was woman runner. and you write I about what you know. Write about what, you know, being out there on the road running marathons and 
and having the physical experience of, you know, that I was able to translate in, into the story. And after writing two or three chapters, I began to realize, all, again, all by myself, because I was just alone with this project, uh, that the story wasn't working because there were no women track coaches at the time. Uh-huh. Nobody was going to believe the story. And I wanted it to have a real nonfiction ring to it. I wanted it to read like the, a real-life Harlan Brown had sat down some years after the fact when he was finally able to deal with it and sat down to the typewriter, no computers yet, and tell his story to be published as a book. And I thought, well, I, I guess I better write the story about men. And so wow. it was simply a decision that I made about the story and how it worked and that didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. Because to me, this whole politically correct question of that only women should write about women and only men should write about men is kind of nonsensical. Right, right. Because writers write about everything. Life. You write about life and, and, and we have to write now and then about things that we haven't necessarily personally experienced, but that's what we have imagination for. One, our, our listener, Philip Cohen, wants to know when you actually first started writing and decided to pursue it as a career. I was 10 years old. Wow. Uh, I was at the the typewriter in the ranch office, which had a great big <laughs> wide carriage on it for doing five generation pedigrees of Hereford cattle. And I'm a hunt and peck typing. Very my, cool. Uh, very bookish family, very educated family, love books. I grew up with books. And by the time I was 10, I wanted to write books of my own. Wow. Very cool. No. Very cool. Thank well, God you did. Thank God you did. We're going to say goodbye to you now, but we're going to ask you to stay so we can snap a picture with you after the after Absolutely. we go on there. Come back again. Yeah. And I have to say, I there are a lot of good reasons to do this show, but the joyful look on Eric Shawquin's face when you took that seat across from him tonight is worth it. It was worth <laughs> doing the whole show, worth the soundproofing and the decorating and the web wow. marketing and all that stuff. It's been a joy to be here with two other writers who have also been out there on the battlefield yeah. with your own creative decisions and so forth and here's my applause to both of you and best of luck with your new books yours chris and yours eric and good luck and and uh i would love to do this again soon with you we'll have you back as soon as i would love it to hear our complete interview with the amazing and inspiring patricia nil warren download episode 15 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or on itunes The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, bringing you interviews with some of the hottest celebrities who made the mistake of taking Christopher and Eric's call. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And this Sunday, August 2nd, we bring you the fourth tasty installment in our TDPS Summer Sampler series. That's right. And the menu's theme will be Not Safe for Work, an exploration of Dinner Party Show highlights on the topics of sex and romance. But mostly sex, I'm afraid. Yeah, pretty much. So send the kids out of the room and put the headphones on this Sunday, August 2nd, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific at thedinnerpartyshow.com. The Dinner Party Show, a new live cast begins airing every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific at thedinnerpartyshow.com or through our free mobile app. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes where all of our shows are available for free anytime you want to listen.
Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And joining us for another one of our 1001 Dark Nights author spotlights is Larissa Ione. Welcome to The Dinner Party Show, Larissa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. And we are very excited about your new novella in the Dark Nights series. It's already on sale, available exclusively from Amazon and at thedinnerpartyshow.com. And in about three months, it will become available from all other retailers. But for now, we want to talk about... Hades. Ooh, going to Hades. <laughs> Yay. So who is he? He's a he's a popular character from your Demonica series, which is really a mainstay of Paranormal Romance, your series, and this is finally his story? It is. He's he's been uh in the in a few different books. He kind of just shows up and and uh helps people out, you know, when he wants to. Um but he basically <laughs> runs the uh, kind of the demon graveyard. When demons die, their souls go to him, and he he handles them in his own kind of private. Uh, I'm not going to say heaven because boy, it's not that. But Hades, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the real tip off there. <laughs> yeah, his own private Hades. Um, so yeah, he. Uh, and, and he's kind of trapped there. He can only get out when the Grim Reaper tells him he can get out. So he, he's mostly stuck there. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's, he's got, keeps a sense of humor about it, though. At so least. he's like an agent for demons. Yeah, yeah, he is. So what would be the word that you would use to describe the universe of the Demonica series? Are these books that are, that are informed by demonology? Or is there a specific ancient text that inspired you when you sat down to plot the world? Um... Oh boy! Really, it's kind of a mishmash of a whole bunch of different. Basically, the Demonica series is taken from a whole bunch of different uh, religions and uh, cultures. I've got demons from uh, Judeo-Christian. Right, demons are really sort of a universal element of a lot of different religious yes. beliefs. A, a sense of this sort of evil force as a as a as a part of cosmology. Exactly. So you've created your own mythology, crafted it together out of a number of different uh, traditions of demons. Exactly. That's that's what I I did. So there's demons from all cultures in in the demonica series but the basis really is the that they are not necessarily evil in my world mm-hmm. they are there are good ones and there are bad ones uh, just like there are people um mm-hmm. it's kind of a, huh. a yin yang kind of thing right but it's a degree of terrible like you wind up a demon but maybe you're not the most awful demon some could be really terrible exactly are you uh, comfortable with the term urban fantasy? Because there's that kind of vibe of like a hidden world just around the corner where the de- I know in the first book in the series, the demons have their own hospital that we're introduced to, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, right. I think I've been to that one. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. Yes, actually I do. I think that my books are kind of a, a blend of paranormal romance and urban fantasy. They they do tend toward, they're grittier than most romance, I would say, darker yeah, and the Hades, once again, I'm thinking is really the tip off here. <laughs> when does the, now, when does, you said the new book is coming out when? It's already on sale. It's already on sale. Already on sale, yeah. And you can get it currently from, you can get it from the dinnerpartyshow.com. Well, of we course, and we appreciate that. If you buy through our site, we are, you help support the show, but. All titles in 1001 Dark Nights are exclusive to Amazon for 90 days, and then they become available on other retailers. So, Larissa, last year in the Dark Knight series, you published a novella like this one, right? It was a side story 
story, a character from the series that hadn't had their story told yet. And that novella is available on all retailers, and that's also available through our site, but you can get it for my books and Barnes & Noble. The Amazon exclusive is only for three months. Cool. Right. Yeah. Excellent. That's well, everywhere. Larissa, we're going to subject you to our 1001 Dark Nights quiz. We put all of our authors through this, but usually I motor right through it since I've met all of you in person. So this time I'm going to let Eric ask you the first two questions, and we're going to cue up our sexy Samba Dark Nights game show theme music in the background. And Okay, here's the music, here's the music. And Eric, so set the stage. Take okay. it away. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, Larissa, you're dangling from a clock face by your bare hands over a 30-story drop, who do you most want to come to your rescue? A vampire, a shifter, or a Navy SEAL? Well, I would love for all three to show up, but... <laughs> you greedy little thing. <laughs> I know, right? I want them all to fight over me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but I am gonna go with vampire. Um, Why's that? Well, I figure that after he saves me, then then this vampire who isn't constrained by, you know, human rules and human morality, we can go out and do some some vigilante justice. Oh, and stuff. wow. And, Maybe and, get even with the people who hung you from that clock in the first place, huh? Oh, they're dead. They are so they're dead. They're dead. You got your vampire on them. And then you can yeah. invite the shifter and the Navy SEAL to the after party. <laughs> Oh, good plan. Right? Okay. So I want storyline credit for that. <laughs> All right. Question two. Are you ready? Ready. The man you're in a relationship with has left <gasps> dirty dishes in the sink uh. for the third time this week. Jerk. Who would you most like to make him jealous with? A billionaire CEO? A stud from a motorcycle gang? Or Bigfoot? Ooh, I can't have my vampire, huh? No, no, he's the previous question. All right, fine. Let's go with... Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I think the billionaire CEO, because he could maybe hire me somebody to do the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And a vampire, if you want one, to be a third. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Billionaire like, CEO yeah. really sort of opens up your options. Although the motorcycle <laughs> gang, I could kidnap the vampire probably. All right. Now it's my turn. I'm all taking right, back right. the quiz. That's I'm it for me. Quiz. All right, Larissa, finish this sentence with one word. Romance is blank. Awesome. Awesome. All right. It is. It's the spice of life, isn't it, Larissa? It is necessary. I tell people this when they're, they, you know, they make fun of romance and I, you know, I ask, are you married? Do you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Then you're living a romance. It is in everything. Romance is awesome and it's necessary. And so there. I like your attitude. There you go. There you go. All right. Last question on the quiz before we draw to find out who you'll get from our hero bowl. The last question is true or false? In real life, there are no happy endings. Mm, False. I think that there can be happy endings. There was some hesitation there. That's interesting. All of our previous contestants have said, "That's of course it's not true. We b- totally believe in happy it's endings. Not I, it's not a guarantee, though. It's not a guarantee. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I tend to have a little bit of uh, um, pessimism in me. So, yeah. A little I, darkness. I think, Once yeah. again, I'm going to say Hades is a <laughs> little, little clue here. <laughs> Look at what to I the write. darker side, the grittier aspect of romance. 
Yeah. All righty, Larissa, it is now time to draw from our hero bowl to find out who you will spend a completely chaste and non-threatening to your marriage night with. <laughs> as a result, unless as the, you have that kind of marriage, in which case, <laughs> knock yourself out, because <laughs> that's you know a genre of romance that's too. That's right. I've written one. It's called Menage. All right, and the the winner. Well, Larissa is the winner, but the lucky guy who gets to spend the night with her out of our hero bowl is Bill from True Blood. Oh, you got your vampire. Well, Larissa, thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Dinner Party Show, and we want to remind everyone that your new novella is called Hades, and it's available for sale through the Dinner Party Show and exclusively on Amazon for the next 90 days before it becomes available from all other digital book retailers. Good luck. Thank you very much. I appreciate it being here, and you guys are awesome. Thanks, Larissa. Thanks, Larissa. Welcome. Bye. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Don't feed the hosts after midnight. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to the Right Answers installment of the TDPS Summer Sampler Series. Activist and advice columnist Dan Savage had perhaps the most concise explanation for his storied career as a writer. You, you trained us in theater, right? Your yeah. degree is in theater. How did you become the, I know that the advice columnist for sex, it's not like you're coming from this Dr. Laura background or no, whatever. And, and she, fake, does, she doesn't even have a psychology degree. degree, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you look up advice in the dictionary, it says opinion about what could or should be done. The only qualification you need to give your opinion is some fool fucking asked you for it. Right? <laughs> and fools ask me for my opinion all Excellent. the time. Excellent. Um, but I grew up reading uh, Ann Landers and Abigail Van Buren. Uh, I was going to say, because you got good advice, babe. Xavier Hollander, who is the happy hooker. Oh, yeah. Ask the Madam, the column in Penthouse Magazine right? in the 70s and 80s. I read that. And my mother was sort of the Dr. Phil of the neighborhood. And I was a little sissy boy who stayed home all the time. So I would be there while she was at these coffee clutches giving advice to the neighbor ladies and listening to their problems and sort of, I didn't realize it, but when this column was sort of dumped in my lap, I had kind of been in training all my life to be an advice columnist. Dan had a lot more to say about pretty much everything on episode 33, which you can download at thedinnerpartyshow.com and on iTunes. And in episode 40, the glamorous Coco Peru had this to say about writing and performing her stage shows. Does, do your stories, do your monologues reflect your own life experience? Yeah, they're all auto, they're autobiographical. So everything all, is, everything's autobiographical. it's all true out it's there. It's all true. And in fact, people come to me afterwards and you know, I mention, oh, my husband, this is my husband, Raphael. If he happens to be at a show and they go, that's real? They right. they they really do believe I'm making up all this stuff, which just bothers me. I, you know, I, why do you think that is? Is it because they think, oh, it's a character? It's a character. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So, yeah. I guess, and I guess there is some advantage. One of the few, one of the many brilliant things that the drunken whore said when we were <laughs> doing the books together was she said she chose to do. Oh yeah, okay. The fuck are you doing? I always have to play that when you say that. Um, is that? The reason that she wanted to do the books that we did as fiction was so she could tell the truth. She yeah. said she felt like people who were telling, doing uh, memoirs were restricted mm -hmm. by the fact that they were telling the truth. And whereas well, if you're fictionalizing it, you can yeah. say, well, and, and actually, I, I also believe that when you're writing fiction, you are touching on, you're, you're telling the truth on some level of, right. of these universal truths through these characters. I mean, 
you know, even though it's fiction, you're, you're touching on, I you're think bringing that's out the, the brilliance truth. of yeah. fiction for me yeah. is it's a heightened reality that reveals the truth way better than just telling exactly. me a real story. Like if real life was interesting, we wouldn't and need books and that's one of the reasons I, I did it. I did my stories in drag because right. I realized that there was something uh, more truthful that people would be able to, I think if I did it as a boy, people would say, shut the fuck up. Mm, that's interesting. They wouldn't care. It would but seem self-indulgent. It would maybe. seem self-indulgent. Yeah. Right. And I hate self-indulgence. Right. Even though that's what I do so maybe for a living. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I was aware of that. I was aware of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Now it creates a great platform to yeah. still tell your truth, even though it's and if you need to embellish because it is a character, you can yeah. to for the purposes of humor or whatever, which is also good storytelling. Possibly one of the most inspired literary launches came to us from my fellow A Thousand and One Dark Knights author, MJ Rose, who kind of invented e-publishing. We want to talk some about how you got started because you were sort of a self-publishing sensation, I should say, long before the age of Amazon and Kindle and eBooks. And and your bio says that you began publishing digitally. Is that really an accurate description? Yes, I was. I am the first author to self-publish a novel online in 1998 that got picked up by the New York publishing establishment, and it was completely an accident. I had an agent, and we had rave reviews, and everybody was telling her that they would buy my book if only they knew how to market it. <laughs> but I was in advertising, right. and I worked at a big agency in New York, and I knew how to market a novel that was cross-genre, so I said to her, we had two novels that were rejected for the same reason, and I said to her, I'm going to go online, and she said, what's online? This was like 1998. Right. <laughs> what's and, online? And I said, I'm going to put up this Word document on my website, and people can buy it and download it and read it, and I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to advertise the book three different ways and test market a campaign. And whichever campaign sells the most books, we can go back to the publisher and say, look, she sold 20 books with this campaign, you should buy her book. And the only place to sell a book, so it turned out people didn't really want to buy a Word document, mm. and I didn't really want to keep going to Kinko's. Right. So I printed up a thousand copies or something, actually more than that, 2,500 copies, and I put up the download, and I put the printed copies up at Amazon, because anybody who had an ISBN could do that. And I went online, I started doing these ad campaigns. And um, this by now it's 1998. It took me a while to figure all this out. So we started um, ahead of everyone else selling. in the entire world. <laughs> it started selling, and all of a sudden it like caught on, and it was the best-selling small press book at Amazon. Um, Amazon was like only what three years old. Yeah, then. Amazon was babies and, back yeah. then. Yeah, and um, the Doubleday Book Club and Literary Guild. Um, found the book somehow in the Amazon search engine. It came up, you know, if you like this, you'd like this. And an editor there bought the book and then contacted me because the name of my company was Lady Chatterley's Library. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and the URL was in the back of the book. And so she contacted me and said, I read this book and we want to buy it for the Double Day Book Club, the Erotic Book Club, and the Mystery Book Club, and like all the different book clubs. And I was like, cool, but you know, it's actually self-published. And I didn't ever mean to sell it. And she said, no, 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 we want it. We don't care. So huh. I said, have you ever done this before? And she said, no. And I said, great. Do you mind if I send out a press release? Because I'm from advertising. So right, I send a so press you know. release to Bloomberg and AP and all these places. And 
uh, within three weeks, the book had sold to Simon and Schuster, and they reprinted it. And I was on the Today Show, and I wound up without meaning to being the first person to do this. And um, and that that's what happened. Oh way my God! This is fascinating. <laughs> you invented digital publishing, MJ. I'm incredibly <laughs> impressed. You can hear more from MJ by downloading episodes 70, 95, and 106 at the dinnerpartyshow.com show archive or from iTunes. One of our most prolific guests, Jackie Collins, still writes in longhand, but she got the sexual revolution started as she set out to write about strong women who knew their way around the house and the office. When you started, you wanted to write sexy books, but when you looked out at what was going on with books that were focused on sort of uh, various sexual relationships, yeah. it was Harold Robbins and Sidney Sheldon. Yeah. And you said in those books, the women were either in the kitchen or the bedroom. Absolutely. So yeah. it was a question of sex or cooking. And I thought, well, my <laughs> women are going to be fantastic women. They're going to be strong. They're going to be sexually equal. They're going to be out there. And they're going to do whatever they can do mm -hmm. to be that way. And so I've created some very strong heroines over the years. And the strongest, of course, is Lucky St. Angelo. Of course, right. Which I did two miniseries for NBC about, which I wrote and produced. Wonderful. And um, nine books about Lucky now. And the St. Angelo's comes out in June. Wonderful. Which is an epic ten. story. And the, one of the family dies. I'm not going to oh. say who. But I know everybody will be furious. However, uh, do I don't do? know what my characters are going to do. I sit down with a pen. I have no well, that, outline. That's the other thing that I was hearing is that you have no outline. You no. just sort of go with it and you write out entirely by hand. Yes, I do. It's uh, so old-fashioned, but I love it. But I think there are a lot of writers who do that. Nelson DeMille, I believe, writes out entirely oh, by really? hand. Yeah, yeah. that there's a, there's a whole school of thought that it allows your mind, I don't do it, so I don't know why I'm speaking with this authority about it, but it allows your mind to sort of slow down and live in the book more. You As know, opposed to your absolutely. Keys can sort of get my away my from you. characters take me over. When I'm writing Lucky, I, I become Lucky. Now, I'll tell you what inspired me. Um, I wanted to write a really, really strong heroine, and I wanted her to have a battle with her father. In fact, I think it was CNN that called it The Godfather Goes to Bed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's very sexy, and it's the first mm. book about Lucky Sant'Angelo and Gino Sant'Angelo. He comes to America at the beginning of the last century, and he becomes one of the biggest gangsters in America, and then he goes legitimate, and he builds hotels at the beginning of Las Vegas, and then Lucky is born, and she wants to follow her father because her brother is gay, and he does not want to get into the business. And, of course, Gino, being a kind of very macho man, cannot accept the fact that he has a gay son. But mm. Lucky is very supportive of him, Dario. Unfortunately, Dario gets... No, I better not say what happens Don't to say that. No, 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 spoiler I'm alert. Hooked. Spoiler I'm, alert. I'm already hooked. I'm already hooked. But uh, uh, that was the inspiration. Jackie's amazing interviews with us are available by downloading episodes 103 and 119 at the dinnerpartyshow.com library and on iTunes. Well, that's just about all the time we have. Perhaps the most concise pieces of advice on the business of writing were offered by my co-host, best-selling author Eric Shaw Quinn, when he was speaking to our guest, gossip columnist Ted Casablanca. No, oh, the book. Yeah, oh, let's yeah. talk about the oh, book. Okay. In fact, that's the only reason I came on this goddamn show. Is because I want to figure <laughs> out to how God. the Here fuck it comes. you finish a book. It's like, oh. I'm, I'm very close, but you all have published oh. how many between the two of you? Oh, between the two about of us? About 12. Yeah, between the two of us. I've published five. And I've five. done about five, I think. So, Do you yeah. enjoy writing? Yes. 
but it is not what anybody thinks. Right. It is it is about and you know this from doing I do you've and I written, don't. you have written one column at a time the works of Proust. You know what I mean? Like it is and that's how you write a novel. You write it one Piece little bit at a time. At a time. Every day you write a few pages and but if you write a page a day at the end of the year, you have a 365-page yes. novel. That's exactly, And that's the trick to writing, is doing it every day. And there you have it. The ultimate right answer, the secret to being a writer. What better way to conclude our third TDPS summer sampler? We hope we left you feeling as inspired as we have been by all these wonderful, generous authors who have been on the show over the years. Join us next week for an all-new summer sampler that's all about sex... And romance. It's not safe for work on The Dinner Party Show. I think that's true every week. Well, this time you've been warned. Till then, I'm Christopher Rice. <laughs> and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to The Dinner Party Show. Thanks. I've been to a marvelous party.